Turn in your Bible to Revelation chapter 2. We're in the section of the book of Revelation that contains the letters to the seven churches. And today we'll look at the fourth and fifth letters. So the letters to the churches in Thyatira and Sardis. And we're going to begin by just reading the first one, the letter to Thyatira. So Revelation chapter 2, and we'll read verses 18 through 29. So follow along as I read. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, we've usually been beginning by taking a little tour of each of these cities where these churches are. And we'll do that with Thyatira, but there is really not a lot to show you. There's not nearly as much here as there is with the other churches. I'll give you the little bit of background that I can this morning before we talk about the letter itself. So here's the map, and we've been following the, the, the letters kind of come around this trail, and now we're here at Thyatira. And uh, this is really all that exists of the excavated remains of Thyatira. The building in the foreground here is a public building of some kind, probably from after John's time, and it was later turned into a church. This seems to be a road that had a colonnade along it. Possibly this was the Agora or the marketplace. If it was the Agora, then that area would have been filled with shops. Thyatira was a crossroads city. Trade routes came through this city, and there was lots of different trade guilds that were known there, kind of like a, a union today. More than any other city in ancient uh, Asia Minor, we have information about trade guilds in Thyatira. We know of trade guilds for wool workers and for linen workers, for garment makers, tanners, leather workers, potters, bakers, shoemakers, slave traders, and bronze workers. In the letter to Thyatira, you heard the idea of a name being removed from a book, or you'll, you, you'll hear that in, in the letter to Sardis, I should say. This is an inscription, not a book, but you can see where a name has been removed here. And that's probably, archaeologists think, the name of an emperor that was removed kind of in disgrace for some of the things that he did. 
That's really about all there is to show you from Thyatira. So with that, we're going to jump into the, the letter itself. And I'd like to talk about this particular church with the language of being determined, being determined, determination. The church in Thyatira has some positive things going for it, but they've become tolerant and lazy. They're allowing things they shouldn't. They're not finishing their work. So this church must become determined, determined to serve Jesus fully. The first aspect of that, and I tried to kind of alliterate a little bit to help you here this morning, is determination and devotion. And I mean devotion to Jesus as the Son of God. The church in Thyatira must be devoted to Jesus because Jesus is the true king who deserves their allegiance, their devotion. Jesus introduces himself to the church in Thyatira as the son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. When you think of the phrase son of God, you probably think that that's emphasizing Jesus' divinity, the fact that he's God. But the storyline of the Bible and in ancient Near Eastern culture it's actually telling us something different. It's telling us that Jesus is the king. Yes, Jesus is God. We're not diminishing that. But calling him the son of God is telling us that he is the king. The king was the son of God. So in the Old Testament, you have kings like Abimelech, whose name means God is my father. Or you have Ben-Hadad, son of the God Hadad. And Jesus' message for the church in Thyatira is that he is the king. All authority belongs to him. The symbols in this letter are drawn from the time period in Israel's history that we call the monarchy. The time when the kings were ruling. Jezebel was a queen who was married to King Ahab. Kingship is the context for what Jesus is saying here. In Thyatira, the main god, the main deity, was Apollo Tyrimnus. And Apollo Tyrimnus was really a combination of two gods. Tyrimnus was the ancient Lydian sun god. And Apollo was a Greek god who was the son of Zeus. You put those together, we have Apollo Tyrimnus, a god who was the son of a god. Apollo Tyrimnus was the patron god of the trade guild for the bronze workers. There seems to have been a unique bronze-like product in Thyatira called chocolabanus. And that's the word that's used in Jesus' description of himself as having feet like burnished bronze. So we said a few weeks ago that bronze was a typical metal that was used for weapons of war. And now we can add to it that Jesus is really supplanting Apollo Tyrimnus here. I'm the one who has the burnished bronze. I'm the one who goes to war as king, Jesus is saying. That he has feet of burnished bronze means that he's on the move. That he has eyes like a flame of fire means that as the king, he sees to the heart of the matter. He's the perfect judge executing justice as the righteous king. Let me just walk you through a series of verses to help you see why Jesus being the son of God means that he's the king. Turn in your Bible to Psalm 2. Now, I'm going to read another verse while you're turning there. So can you do two things at the same time? Look for Psalm 2 and listen to the verse that I'm going to read here. Okay, the first verse I want to read for you is 2 Samuel 7, 14. 
This is God speaking to David about David's son Solomon. And he says, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. So you can see there the idea of kingship and sonship brought together. Okay, kingship and sonship brought together. Now, are you in Psalm 2? If you are, follow along as I read. I want to read this whole psalm. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So we have kings of the earth who are in rebellion against the one that God has anointed as king. Now verse four, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So God is saying, I have already said who the king is. I have put my king in place. And ultimately, this is talking to us about Jesus. And now look what is said. Verse 7. This, this now jumps. It's no longer, it's no longer God speaking it's now Jesus speaking, the anointed one speaking, okay? And he says, I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So God said to his king, Jesus, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now that doesn't mean that Jesus came into existence at that point. Jesus always existed. What that is saying is that he has given him a particular role as his son and that role is being the king. He's put him on the throne as king, which means he's the son of God. Kingship and sonship go together here. Verse 10, now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So all the kings of the earth are called to bow the knee to this one king that God has put in place. And the way that they do that the expression of that that he uses here is kiss the sun. In other words, you can picture, you know, maybe in medieval times, someone bowing the knee and kissing the ring, that kind of idea. It's this showing submission to the king. But it says kiss the sun because the king and the sun are one and the same. Okay. We're going to, now that you've got practice, we're going to do this again. Turn to Romans 1. And while you're turning there, I'm going to read to you from Hebrews chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. Okay, you're turning to Romans 1, but this is what Hebrews 1 says. This is speaking about Jesus. It says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, 
he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Okay, so this is talking about Jesus' enthronement. He's raised, he ascends, and he sits down on the throne. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So there's some sense in which Jesus has become superior. It's not saying that he wasn't inherently superior before, but he's now taking on a particular role of superiority. And the next verse helps us to understand it. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Okay, so this is picking up the language that we just saw from the Old Testament. And the idea is Jesus has been begotten as the son because he's sitting enthroned as the king. Son and king go together. All right, Romans 1. Let me get there myself. Whoops, lost my bookmark. Okay. Now it's a sword drill. Okay, Romans 1, 1 through 6. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. So here in those verses, you have the fact that Jesus is descended from David, which means he's Israel's rightful king, but he's been declared to be the son of God in the resurrection which means he's not just Israel's king, he's the universal king. Therefore, all the nations should obey him. Do you see how that works? Again, it's sonship and kingship together here. So the point is, for the church in Thyatira, they should recognize that the true king is Jesus, and they should be devoted to him above all other kings and rulers. Second thing for the church in Thyatira, determination and dualism. This, we're going to talk about the influence of Jezebel. Jesus says that the church in Thyatira is tolerating the teaching of that woman Jezebel, which is resulting in their participation in idol worship and sexual immorality. Now, I don't know if there really was a lady named Jezebel, or if there was someone that was a lady who was a prophetess in the church and was acting like Jezebel, or if there's just an influence in the church that Jesus and John are referring to in these words to help us understand the importance of it, it doesn't really matter. But the, per the point is, there's some kind of influence in the church that is lining up with the characteristics of Jezebel. So we need to figure out what that means. Well, Queen Jezebel was the wife of King Ahab of Israel. Jezebel was a foreigner who worshipped Baal, and when Ahab married her, she brought that worship into Israel. So under her influence, Israel mixed the worship of God with the worship of Baal, and that resulted in Israel participating in idol worship and sexual immorality. There's a famous battle 
that happens on Mount Carmel between the prophets of Baal, the ones that are there because of Jezebel's influence, and the prophet Elijah. And 1 Kings 21 verse 25 tells us, There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. So Ahab did very evil things, and it was Jezebel's influence that brought it about. In Jezebel's day, Israel thought they could add the worship of Baal to the worship of God, and it would work to their advantage. In Thyatira, it seems that the church has some who believe that they can add false worship to serving Jesus, and it would work to their advantage. What was that false worship? Well, probably some of it had to do with the temple meals, particularly those associated with the trade guilds. You want to be part of the trade guild? Take part in the temple meals that the trade guild sponsors. Honor the gods. Enjoy the sensual entertainment. Maybe even take part in the immorality yourself. It's all part of the worship of the God, and it's all part of being in the guild. You don't want to do that? Well, then we won't patronize your business. You won't get contracts in the city. You'll have to scrape by on what you can get outside the system. And the reasoning of some in the church was, and we can see this in the letter to the Corinthians, for example, hey, they're not real gods anyway. You're not really worshiping the gods if you don't actually believe they exist. So go ahead. The true God will understand Do what you need to do to get by on the outside. But on the inside, you're really only worshiping the true God. In your heart, you know the truth. You have that deep knowledge that most in the city don't have. So the spiritual is what matters and the physical is irrelevant. That's dualism. And that's not biblical Christianity. The dualism probably didn't just include the pagan practices, but also the Jewish practices as well. There were those who believed in Jesus, but also said that, oh, it's okay for us to go back to Judaism and and adopt the Jewish ceremonial laws. And the reasoning here is the same. Okay, well, Jesus fulfilled those things. I I mean, maybe I know that truth in my heart, but it's safer to go back and, and still participate in those things on the outside at least look like a good law-keeping Jew. On the inside, I'm trusting in Jesus. But this way, the state will see me as Jewish and they won't bother me. We Christians won't be viewed as troublemakers. In the days of Jezebel, Israel thought they could serve both God and Baal. But Jezebel knew better. She tried to kill all the prophets of God. And Jesus' message for the church in Thyatira is that you can't serve Jesus and the gods of Rome. You can't serve Jesus and trust in Old Testament Judaism. And we need to understand today that serving Jesus is exclusive. We need to be on guard for all the other things that vie for our loyalty. We must be dedicated to serving Jesus, not just spiritually in my heart, but with our whole being in every area of life. Next, determination and discipline. And here I want to talk about the judgment of Jezebel. Because the church in Thyatira has not been determined to serve Jesus alone, they are now subject to discipline, to judgment. 
God has been patient with them. He says he's given them time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her immorality. So the result is going to be discipline, judgment. Jesus says, I will throw her onto a sickbed. Now there's a play on words here because this word bed has several meanings. First, since she's accused of sexual immorality, the bed is the place of her sin. In the temple in Thyatira, the meals would have been eaten on couches or beds. So the participant is lying on the couch bed, kind of with their feet away from the center of things, their head towards it, they're leaning, you know, reclining, and watching the entertainment that's going on out in the middle. And Jesus is basically saying, she'll be thrown down on the bed. The party couch will be turned into a sick bed and ultimately a funeral bed. And we are told he will strike her children dead. That's not the only play on words. When Jesus says he will throw her down on the sickbed, he's recalling the story of Jezebel's death. Turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 9. And while you're turning, I'll give you the background. God determined after Ahab, a little while after Ahab, that Jehu would become king, replacing Joram. Joram was Jezebel's son. When Jehu came to confront Joram, at the city of Jezreel, I know it's a lot of J names, Joram rode out to meet him asking, is it peace, Jehu? And Jehu's response was, what peace can there be so long as the whorings and sorceries of your mother Jezebel are so many? So far, so good. Unlike the church in Thyatira, Jehu sounds like he won't tolerate this syncretism. Joram turns around and flees back into the city, but Jehu shot him between the shoulders with an arrow. He then told his men to throw the body into the field of Naboth. Backstory on that is Naboth, Naboth had a vineyard that King Ahab wanted. Ahab tried to violate the law and buy it, take it from him, but Naboth refused. Jezebel hatched a plan that involved proclaiming a religious ceremony in order to be able to kill Naboth and take his vineyard. Because of Ahab and Jezebel's actions, God condemned them both to horrible deaths. Specifically, about Jezebel, he said that Jezebel would be eaten by dogs by the walls of the city of Jezreel. Now, with all of that in mind, Take a look at 2 Kings chapter 9, starting in verse 30. When Jehu came to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it, and she painted her eyes and adorned her head and looked out of the window. And as Jehu entered the gate, she said, Is it peace, you Zimri, murderer of your master? And he lifted up his face to the window and said, Who is on my side? Who? Two or three eunuchs looked out at him. He said, Throw her down. So they threw her down and some of her blood spattered on the wall and on the horses and they trampled on her. Then he went in and ate and drank and he said, see now to this cursed woman and bury her for she is a king's daughter. But when they went to bury her, they found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. When they came back and told him, he said, this is the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Elijah the Tishbite. In the territory of Jezreel, the dogs shall eat the flesh of Jezebel, and the corpse of Jezebel shall be as dung on the face of the field in the territory of Jezreel, so that no one can say, this is Jezebel. 
So Ahab's body was thrown down and Jezebel was thrown down. And Jesus says that he will throw down those in Thyatira who are leading the church astray by compromise and syncretism. And hopefully the story of Jezebel helps you to see just how seriously Jesus takes the issue. Now, if you're still there in 2 Kings, look at chapter 10 and verse 31. If you're not, just listen. Chapter 10, verse 31. <clears throat> but Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin. It is not enough to avoid syncretism and compromise. It is also essential to walk in the law of the Lord. The church in Thyatira will face discipline particularly those who follow the teaching of Jezebel. But it's not enough simply to reject the teaching. They must follow through, like Jehu did not, walking in the law of the Lord. And that leads to the last point for Thyatira, determination and duty. Jesus calls this church to keep his works to the end or complete his works. At the beginning of the letter, he said that he knows their works, their love and faith and service and patient endurance, and they should now complete those works. Follow through, walk in the law of the Lord. He tells them that they will, he will give to them according to their works. Well, that idea, giving to them according to their works, is in keeping with the law of the Lord. One of the central ideas of God's law is the lex talionis, eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. In other words, it's the law of retribution. Justice is retributive. When we met with the, the youth for the Bible study this last Wednesday, we talked about this idea. Our culture wants to have distributive justice where we, we go out and actively make justice for everyone. Biblical justice is retributive. It's in response to what you've done. The judgment should fit the crime. So God will give to them according to their works. And he tells them that they should hold fast what they have, not tolerating the teaching of Jezebel. He says in verse 24, I do not lay on you any other burden. Well, that language is taken from Acts chapter 15, the story of the Jerusalem council. When the church was trying to figure out what requirements should be placed on Gentile Christians, the council concluded in Acts 15, 28, it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. You can hear in there some of the same concerns as what Jesus raises with the church in Thyatira. Because they're tolerating the syncretism of Jezebel, they're involved with idol worship and sexual immorality. The council was saying, you don't need to become Jews. You don't need to adopt the ceremonial laws. All you need is faith in Jesus. And that faith will be demonstrated by avoiding participating in idol feasts and sexual immorality. And Jesus also says that the ones who overcome, who conquer in Thyatira, will be given authority over the nations. They will rule with a rod of iron, even as Jesus received authority from his father. 
So the father gives Jesus authority, kingship, and he rules the nations with a rod of iron. We saw that in Psalm 2. And now Jesus says that this church will share in that rule with him. They will play a part in exercising his authority in the world over the nations. As the kingdom of Jesus grows and expands like a mustard plant, like yeast in a lump of dough, like the stone that came out of the mountain and rolled and dis- or came and rolled away all those empires and, and grew into a mountain that filled the whole earth, Jesus' kingdom, the church will play a vital role in exercising dominion. The mandate that God gave humanity at creation, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion, and that Jesus reiterated before he ascended to heaven, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, teach the nations to obey. That continues as we share in Jesus' rule in the world today in an ever-increasing way. Now, there's a lot more to be said there, but just note one other thing that Jesus says. He will give the overcomer, the conqueror, the morning star. In the Bible, a star is often a ruler. Numbers 24, 17, we saw prophesied of Jesus, a star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. The morning star symbolized the reign of the Messiah, the king. It's the morning star because this reign begins or dawns in the ascension of Jesus to his throne. And the early church receives the morning star because they share in that rule, still there at the very beginning, the dawn of Jesus' reign. So this church in Thyatira should be determined to do their duty, to finish the works of Jesus that they've begun. And in doing so, they will share in the reign of Christ. That's the letter to the church in Thyatira. Let's take a look now at the letter to the church in Sardis, overcoming through zeal, Revelation 3, 1 through 6. Follow along as I read this letter. Revelation 3, 1 through 6. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, as we continue on around the road from Thyatira, Sardis is the next one in line. Sardis had a temple to Artemis, much like Ephesus. This is an overhead view. The oblong building down here in the corner is a church that was built later. I put this in just to give you a little idea of the scale of the building and the size of the pillars. 
King Croesus of Sardis actually also funded the building of the temple to Artemis in Ephesus. So there's the one that he built here in Sardis. He also built the one in Ephesus. This is the gymnasium and the baths. So the open grassy area out here in front is the gymnasium, the space for athletic exercise and competition, and the baths are the pillared building behind. This building actually dates from the time period just after John wrote Revelation, but it still gives you a little idea of what kind of city Sardis was. Sometimes we have this idea in our minds that these are kind of rinky-dink little towns out in the middle of nowhere, and that's really not the case. These are some pretty impressive cities at times. Here's another angle of the same area, and the pile of rubble kind of down here at the bottom is the remains of a giant archway marking the entrance to Sardis. So the road would have run right here if you were entering the city of Sardis. This is the largest known archway like this in ancient Asia Minor. Um, the long narrow building right here, kind of between the archway and the gymnasium area, is a Jewish synagogue. And this synagogue dates from the fourth century. So it's after the time of John. But it's still remarkable because it's very large and in a very prominent location. And that indicates that there was a large Jewish population and that the population was well received and accepted in the city. Now here you're looking at the smaller room out front with the main gathering area kind of behind it. And now if we go down to the other end and look back, now you're in the main area looking back towards the entrance. And at the uh, front, you have a table and statues. And if you can see, these are lions, and then you have an eagle carved on the sides of the table. This is very, very unusual. The Jews were very sensitive to images of any kind because of Jewish law. You're not supposed to have any images. So, when you combine that with the fact that the eagle is the symbol of Rome, this likely indicates a couple of things about this Jewish community. First, that they were very friendly with Rome. But second, they seem to be a pretty complacent, lax community. They're not being real careful to follow Jewish law strictly. Now, outside the city, we have the Acropolis. Like many cities in the region, Sardis had this city on the heights. Now, it used to be the case that there was a wall that went around this, and that there, that, so when the city was attacked, everyone would go up into the Acropolis inside the walls. That was the defense. Almost all of the structures that used to be there are gone now because of earthquakes in the region and erosion. What's left, you can see a little bit right here, are some structures left as the remains of the wall that was there on um, the Acropolis in Sardis. So this particular Acropolis was very easy to defend because of the sheer cliffs leading up to it. It's very difficult to access. Well, as we look at the letter, I want to talk about this in terms of zeal. The church in Sardis is dying. There's not much life here. But it's not what you might expect when you hear that description. It's a church that we would look at today and think that it's got everything going for it. 
It's the kind of church that would be putting out curriculum that everyone else is using. It's the church that's holding conferences on how to thrive in the culture. But Jesus says they're dead. They need a radical change. They need to become zealous, but in a way that meets Jesus' expectations. So the first point here is zeal and vitality. Liveliness. Jesus says that this church has a reputation of being alive, but they're dead. What does it mean that they have the reputation of being alive? On the outside, things look good. Attendance is good. They're putting out great videos and music and their pastor is a popular speaker and they keep up a brilliant contextualized witness on Twitter. There's no persecution happening in Sardis. The pagans in the city think highly of them. So do the Jews in the synagogue. And why not? The church in Sardis never says or does anything to rock the boat. They never stand in opposition to what's going on in the city. They're allies of the pagans in the city. They have a reputation of being alive, but they're dead. Their works are incomplete in the sight of God. In other words, God's evaluation of them is very different from the outward appearances. The word name is prominent in this letter. In verse 1, they have a name that they are alive, a reputation. In verse 4, they still have a few names in Sardis who remain true, people who are actually spiritually alive by God's standards. In verse 5, God says he will not blot their names out of the book of life. Those who are spiritually alive are eternally secure. And then also in verse 5, Jesus says of those same people that he will confess their name before the Father. Jesus will vouch for the reality of their spiritual life. When Jesus says that he will blot their name out of the book of life, he's not saying that it's possible to lose your salvation, to have your name blotted out of the book of life. Instead, I think he's referring in part to a well-known idea that shows up in the histories of the ancient world. Those convicted of crimes or those receiving the death penalty had their names removed from the city registry. Xenophon, the historian, tells the story in his work Hellenica of a man named Theramenes. Theramenes was part of the 30 tyrants, a group which led the Council of 3000, the governing body of Athens. Only those on the list of 3000 council members were allowed to possess weapons. Everybody else in the city had them confiscated. And only the 3000 were guaranteed the right to a trial. So their names were the ones recorded on the registry. Theramenes had a disagreement with his political rival, Critias. And Theramenes believed that the power of the 30 tyrants should be limited. Well, in order to get rid of Theramenes, Critias accused him of treason. And as the council met, Critias realized that if Theramenes went to trial, he would surely be acquitted because the, the charges were politically motivated. So Critias acted quickly. He whispered with the other members of the 30 tyrants. And then he announced, and here I'm quoting from Xenophon. Now there is a clause in the new code forbidding any of the 3,000 to be put to death without your vote. But the 30 have power of life and death over all outside the list. Accordingly, he proceeded, I herewith strike this man Theramenes off the list. And this with the concurrence of my colleagues. And now, he continued, we condemn him to death. 
continuing from Xenophon here. Hearing these words, Theramenes sprang upon the altar, exclaiming, And I, sirs, supplicate you for the barest forms of law and justice. Let it not be in the power of Critias to strike off either me or any one of you whom he will. But in my case, in what may be your case, if we are tried, let our trial be in accordance with the law they have made concerning those on the list. I do marvel, good sirs and honest gentlemen, for so you are, that you will not help yourselves, and that too when you must see that the name of every one of you is as easily erased as mine. And Jesus says to the church in Sardis, the one who conquers, I will never blot his name out of the book of life. It may have been easy to find yourself with your name removed in the ancient world, but Jesus says he'll never do that. Let me show you briefly where else this idea comes from in the Bible. You've got practice at it now, so we'll try it one more time. Turn to Revelation 20. Revelation 20, and while you're turning there, let me read to you from a few other verses. Luke chapter 10 and verse 20, Jesus has sent out the 70 disciples. They've been casting out demons. They come back to him. They're excited about what they've been able to do. And Jesus says, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Don't value outward excess, success, but value your eternal security that you have in me. Philippians 4.3, Paul writes, Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Common gospel laborers whose names are in the book of life. There's also some Old Testament background here as well. Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. But at that time, your people shall be delivered everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. So people are raised, there's a judgment of some kind, and those whose names are in the book are delivered. And then when you go back to Daniel 7, this is the scene that is the vision of the Ancient of Days on his throne, we read, the court sat in judgment and the books were opened. So here it's books plural. When you come to Revelation 20 then, take a look with me at Revelation 20 verses 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened, plural, then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Okay, same idea as what we see in the letter to Sardis. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So there's the books and there's the book of life. And if your name is in the book of life, 
then you find salvation, deliverance. But if not, then you're judged according to what's in the books, according to your works. It's the record of what you have done. And if you're still there in Revelation 20, look over at chapter 21, verse 27, the very last verse, describing the new Jerusalem. Revelation 21 and verse 27. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Jesus says that this church in Sardis is nearly dead, though they have the reputation of being alive. They need true vitality, true spiritual life, and this means that their name is in the book of life, eternal life. Next point then, zeal and vigilance. Vigilance. One aspect of the zeal that Jesus calls for is vigilance. They are told, wake up. That's an appropriate thing for me to say loudly this far into a message, isn't it? About 600 years before John wrote Revelation, Sardis was ruled by King Croesus. Croesus's wealth was legendary. We even have a saying that was until recently fairly common, rich as Croesus. Croesus mined gold from the Pactolus River, which runs right outside of Sardis. You may remember the legend of King Midas and the gift that he was given of the Midas touch. Midas was king in the region of Phrygia, which is where Sardis and Thyatira are. And the god Dionysus, remember we saw the temple to Dionysus at Pergamum. It was the one that was at the bottom of the theater there. Dionysus was the god of wine. Dionysus gave Midas the gift that everything he touched turned to gold, which seemed like a wonderful gift until he started touching like people that he really cared about and they turned to gold. And so he wanted to get rid of it. And the way that he eventually got rid of the Midas touch was by washing his hands in the Pactolus River, which then left gold deposits in the river. And this is the story of how then Croesus was able to mine gold from the Pactolus River. Now Croesus's wealth, along with Sardis's defenses up at the top of that Acropolis, led Croesus to become complacent about the defense of his city. Let me give you another view of the Acropolis while I read you this story. So just listen along, okay? The Acropolis in Sardis was never defeated by a direct assault from an enemy. It was an easy spot to defend. The Persian king Cyrus, who appears in the Bible, was one of those who attacked Sardis. Croesus was so confident in the Acropolis that he didn't even bother to protect the steepest side of the Acropolis because no one could attack from that direction. But the historian Herodotus tells how several of the Persian soldiers actually managed to climb the cliff and enter the city unnoticed. They then went and opened the gates from inside and the city fell. Croesus had become complacent and lazy. That story became a well-known proverb in the ancient world. However, that didn't stop it from happening again. About 400 years later, Antiochus III captured the city in exactly the same way. This repeated capture of Sardis because of their complacency 
became an even more well-known story, and that's likely what lies behind Jesus' words, wake up, strengthen what remains. Jesus tells them that he will come in judgment like a thief, and you'll not know at what hour I come against you. In other words, he'll come like one of the soldiers who infiltrated Sardis. What is the church in Sardis called to do? Wake up. Be vigilant. Be alert. Don't get lazy. Strengthen the things that remain. It's not enough to root out the false teaching. You have to be vigilant to also learn God's law. When Israel had fallen into idolatry hundreds of years before and the law was then rediscovered, Josiah led the people to reinstate the law as central to their lives. And Jesus says to them, remember what you have received and heard. The gospel message that has been delivered to you must remain central. So then, finally, zeal and virtue. Jesus calls them this, to this zeal and it should lead to virtue or purity. Jesus says that the few who have spiritual vitality and virtue have not soiled their garments. Instead, they will be given white garments and they will walk with Jesus because they are worthy. White garments is often a symbol in the Bible for virtue or purity. The martyrs in Revelation 6 and 7 wear white garments. Daniel's vision in Daniel 7 has the Ancient of Days with clothing as white as snow. Matthew writes that when Jesus was transfigured, his clothes became white as light. Heavenly messengers often show up wearing white garments. And we understand that imagery. Traditionally, a bride wears white on her wedding day to symbolize virtue and purity. And in the ancient world, it was no different. Those who were participating in religious ceremonies would typically wear white garments. Even Roman political candidates wore white robes that were bleached with chalk to indicate their virtue and honesty. The church in Sardis would be very aware as well of stained garments. This region of Asia Minor was known for the dyeing of garments. Sardis had various trade guilds related to this. In Acts 16, we find Lydia, who was from Thyatira, the last church we looked at, same region. And she was a seller of purple, meaning she imported mollusks and the dye that was gotten from them and dyed purple garments. Sardis, in particular, was known for the color that is today called Turkey Red, because it's the country of Turkey. It's uh, this uh, unique color to their area. It's a natural dye that comes from the madder root, which grows in this area. So those kinds of dye or stain were good. Those are desirable. But I think John's using a bit of a play on words here to emphasize the importance of remaining unstained, unblemished, undefiled. And the one who does will walk with Jesus wearing white to signify virtue. Last place I'm going to have you turn this morning. Turn with me to Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah is near the end of the Old Testament. Zechariah chapter 3. And in this chapter, Zechariah relates a vision of Joshua the high priest. In this scene, we have a cosmic spiritual battle that is taking place between God and Satan. The battle revolves around Joshua the high priest and his sin. Look with me at Zechariah 3, 1 through 7. 
Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken away your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Satan, the accuser of the brethren, wants to drag Joshua down with sin. And Joshua has sin. He's wearing filthy garments. Joshua can't clean himself up. But the angel of the Lord, and by the way, remember in the Old Testament, who is the angel of the Lord? It's Jesus. The angel of the Lord is the one here overseeing this and causing this to happen. The angel of the Lord oversees Joshua's filthy garments being removed and him being clothed with clean ones. And then Joshua is given access to the house of the Lord. And this is, of course, a picture of the gospel because each one of us stands before the Lord in filthy garments. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Satan accuses us of sin. And he's not wrong. We deserve judgment. We deserve death. But Jesus steps in, takes our filthy garments. He gives us his own righteousness. And we stand before God, righteous, virtuous, pure. Not because of anything in us, purely because of his grace. How should we respond to that? We should respond by living a pure life. By living a righteous life. Not because we're trying to earn God's favor, but because he's already given it. And a life that is righteous, virtuous, is evidence that God has given us his grace. And that's what the church in Sardis is called to do. Be vigilant. Be virtuous. Wake up and live lives that are marked by righteousness. God called the church in Thyatira to a life of determination, devotion to Jesus as king, rejecting the dualism that downplays the physical world in favor of the spiritual, and determination to do our duty by finishing the works that we've begun in serving Jesus. God called the church in Sardis to a life of zeal, vitality that shows up not on the outside with appearances, but a real living faith on the inside. Vigilance and watchfulness, not being spiritually complacent, but strengthening ourselves with obedience to God's law and clinging to the gospel. And virtue, a life of righteousness lived not with the expectation of earning God's favor, but righteousness lived in gratitude for the grace 
that God has already given. May we as the church in our day respond to the call of Christ to these churches. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who does not let us just go our own way. You intervene in the lives of these churches. You call them to repent and to come back to you. This church in Sardis is particularly striking to me, having the appearance on the outside that everything is the way it should be, but inside, spiritually dead. We are in danger of that, and I pray that you would help us not to be as concerned with what's going on on the outside, but to be ensuring that we have a vital relationship with you. And that because of that, we would walk faithfully. Thank you for your grace and your mercy and your love that you show to us. May we respond to that in faithfulness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.